It's funny how when your children grow older and get to the point where they're looking ahead in life, you as a parent have a tendency to look back. And I was thinking this last week about Hannah's favorite bedtime story. Lily's Purple Plastic Purse. (laughs) Parents, if you have little ones, you haven't gotten that book and read it to them, you need to. But there's a catchphrase in the book that has actually come to me several times since we started the study through the Psalms. And the catchphrase is, wow. That's just about all I can say. Wow. And that's the way I feel about this, this book. You know, we just have to give all the praise and glory to God. How amazing is His Word. And how incredible it is to walk through it. I was sharing with the staff earlier this morning how incredible it is to walk through God's Word because there are things you see, as we have discovered in the Psalms, that you would not see otherwise. You're just picking and choosing passages or verses here, there, and everywhere, but you're not walking through. You miss some of the real treasure that is here in the Word of God. And we will continue to see that tonight. We're going to go through Psalm 56, 57, 58, 59, 60. Buckle up. But it's another, it's another bundle of psalms. Book 2, as you know, is the Exodus deliverance section of the book. Psalm 42 through 72, those 30 or so psalms. And we've seen that there's a clear threefold application that has been emerging, at least since we started the second book. We've seen it in various other psalms, but we've been following these, these bundles of psalms together, and we see that they all have an historical context, all written by David or perhaps Hezekiah or the sons of Korah, written at a time dealing with Israel's past deliverance. So these have been historical in context, but they're also prophetical. And you know that excites me. I love looking ahead and, and looking at the things to come, especially as Scripture reveals it in truth. And these psalms have been amazing in their prophecy as they describe Israel's future deliverance. Historical Israel's past deliverance. Prophetical Israel's future deliverance. And we'll see that more tonight. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Jeremiah the prophet said, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. And we're going to talk about that. We've heard that distress call The call of the godly remnant coming out of the tribulation, the first three and a half years of that seven year period, as they cry out to God for help, we will hear the call of Israel again tonight. The call of the remnant only from a different perspective. So historical, prophetical, but also don't forget in all these things. The Lord gave us His word to speak personally as well. Historically, sure, and prophetically, but personally, These psalms have been wonderfully declaring our deliverance in Jesus Christ. And as we tap into them, we begin to see how God delivers, how He wants to deliver, how He is always on hand, always listening to the prayers of His people. So tonight we take up Psalm 56 through 60, another great bundle of psalms, so keep watching historically, prophetically, and personally. Now you might ask the question, and I've been asked, how do you know which psalms go together? And part of the answer to that that I I give people is that there's no shortcut. You don't just know. You you look, you study, you you take the time to see how they compare together, how they fall together. But with these particular psalms, you you would notice something if you read through them. For the next five, they are all miktoms. Five miktoms in a row. 
And there's something to that. Placed together in this section, these five miktoms of David. There are only six miktoms in the entire book of Psalms. Out of 150, there are just six, and we've already seen one of them. Psalm 16 is a miktom of David. We call it a miktom of the Messiah because Psalm 16 is this amazing prophetic picture of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. And in fact, if you listen to it, we talked about how it may even be the heart cry of Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane, Psalm 16. Well, how do you know Psalm 16 has to do with Jesus? Well, Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and following quotes it and says this is all about Jesus. And in Acts 13, Paul comes along, same thing. Paul says, no, yeah, this is about Jesus Christ. So we know Psalm 16, that miktam, was all about Jesus. But now we come to five more, and these are all placed together. And when we first came to Psalm 16, we recognized the word miktam is hard to define. And depending on which commentator you read or study, they've got different perspectives. Here are a few I'll just bring you up to speed, remind you of what we talked about several weeks back. It can mean golden or precious, perhaps, miktam, because there's a similar Hebrew noun when you read things like the gold of Ophir. Uh, That word gold looks similar. The Hebrew writing is similar. Hebrew is a very uh, artistic language. It's very picturesque if you've ever seen it written out. And so when you look at gold and you look at miktam, It's real close. It's not exact, but it's close. So people say, well, perhaps that's what it means. It's a golden psalm. A precious psalm. There are others who say, no, no, it it means it's a hidden thing. A miktam is hidden. Because the Arabic word that's similar to it is maktum. Maktum in the Arabic means hidden. And there are Hebrew words that are taken from, derived from, Arabic words. And Arabic words that are derived from Hebrew words, shalom and salam, both meaning peace. Shalom in the Hebrew, Salam in the Arabic. And so maybe that's it. Maktum in the Arabic, Miktam in the Hebrew, maybe it means hidden. Others come along and say, no, it means engraved or inscribed. Because there's a Hebrew verb that looks like it. So the Hebrew noun looks like golden, but the Hebrew verb looks like, perhaps, for engraved, looks like Miktam. So perhaps that's it. Golden, hidden, engraved. Which one is it, Pastor Rick? I don't know. But, these five miktams, interestingly, were all written by David while hiding out in caves. Which lends some credibility to the possibility that miktam means engraving. Because perhaps, and some have thought, that David actually engraved these psalms on the cavernous walls when he was there in hiding. That without parchment and, and, and pen, without any other means, that he literally carved them in the walls and later they went back and pulled them off the wall and wrote them down and took them and added them into the book of Psalms. But what's interesting as you study through is the context of these Psalms indicate something golden and hidden and engraved. Because as you look and read through the context, you realize that David is talking about something enduring and immovable. Enduring like gold. And immovable like something hidden or engraved on the wall of a cave. Hey, remember that wonderful guarantee from back in Psalm 55 that we just read last week. Verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken or to be moved. An immovable promise. God says, I'm there for you. You can count on it. Like an engraving in stone, or like the preciousness of gold, I am here for you. 
Now, Psalm 56 through 60 take up the plea of Psalm 55. So they follow right on the heels of Psalm 55. Well, what was the plea of Psalm 55? You may remember for David historically, but also for Israel prophetically, the plea comes out of that time of Jacob's distress. What do you mean? Look at Psalm 55, verse 6. Back a little bit. David writes, Oh, that I had the wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. David cries out, desiring to flee his trouble, to flee his distress, to a place in the wilderness, which is exactly what the book of Revelation tells us will happen for Israel. They will flee to a place in the wilderness. And Psalm 56 is the response to that prayer. It's the fulfillment of that prayer. Zechariah 14, verse 5 prophesies, You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. People of Israel, you are going to flee. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. David says, I just wish I could flee. I want to flee. And the heart of Israel in the tribulation as it goes from bad to worse to absolutely horrific will be a heart to flee, to get out. And Jesus gives the warning. And believing Jews, I'm talking about Jews believing in Christ during the first half of the tribulation will recognize that warning which is the abomination of desolation. Antichrist setting up his own throne in the temple and setting himself up to be God. And in that moment, one Jew believing in Christ will look at another Jew believing in Christ and they'll say, time to go and no time to pack. Get out and get out now. Revelation 12.14 tells us the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, that's Israel, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. As the word miktam suggests, Israel will be hidden. Hidden away in an unmovable, enduring place, safe but surrounded, and yet secure. Just as David in the caves was safe but surrounded, yet secure. Just as you in Christ Jesus, listen, are safe but surrounded, yet secure. Consider that and remember that phrase, safe but surrounded yet secure. And check this out. The heading for Psalm 56. For the choir director, according to Yonat Alim Rehochim, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now we read all of these headings because, gang, they're as inspired as the Psalms. They're important. They are written in the Hebrew as part of the Psalms. And therefore, we take them as the Word of God as well. Though I, I know that the Bible, the Bibles tend to make them a little bit of a smaller font. That doesn't make them less important. <laughs> the heading here, Yonah Elim Rehokim, which means, and I love this, the dove of the distant terebinths. The dove of the distant terebinths. Now, apparently it was a familiar musical tune with some new lyrics now that David has written to go with the song called The Dove of the Distant Terebinths. But the title is itself a beautiful portrait. A great picture here of the meaning of Psalm 56. The terebinth is a tree that in the Mideast is similar to what we out here in the West have, the oak tree. 
Very, very strong tree. And bushy around the top can grow very tall, big, and the, the roots go very deep and the base is thick. They have a tendency to flourish in dry, arid, mountainous places, especially east of the Jordan River. As we were driving down the freeway, there comes a place in California, and I just love the landscape there. It's actually wine country in California, and at the time of year we were driving, there were beautiful oak trees everywhere that were absolutely green, and the landscape itself was just yellow grass, as far as the eye could see, rolling hills of this yellow grass with these green oak trees. And they they do well in that kind of arid environment. Well, the terebinth does as well. And so picture that, a great oak tree, or a terebinth tree, strongly rooted... Yet from its mighty boughs comes the song of the dove, that, that gentle cooing. I've shared before, we used to have a dove that encamped in a tree right out back of our house in Anaheim, California, of all places. And I loved that little bird. Because for all the horn honking and the traffic noise and the constant buzz that was outside our window, every now and then we would hear this, Does that sound like a dove? That's, that's about as good as I can do. And I would wake up to that and think, oh, the sound, the sound of the dove. The dove of the distant terebinth. The dove in the strong oak tree. An oak tree that is secure, that is enduring. And the dove song is within, like a child of God, who is established in Jesus Christ with the song of the Spirit sung from within. So that's the background, the idea here. By the way, Isaiah 11, verse 2 The prophet, talking about Jesus, says the following, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Isaiah, again, describes Mashiach prior to His coming a thousand years ahead. And then here comes Jesus, and He is very much this way, very much like the writing of Isaiah. But you need to remember this, that that same Spirit... The dove of the distant terebinth, the strength of Christ, the same spirit rested on David as he wrote these psalms and as he led Israel and as he lodged in the cave of Adullam. The same spirit of Christ will rest on Israel. Israel saved, lodging in the wilderness during the great tribulation. And the great same spirit of Christ rests on you and me right now. Same Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and fear. Don't get cocky. It's not your Spirit. It's His resting on you, within you, teaching, leading, guiding, giving us nourishment, growing us in the Lord. His Spirit. Same Spirit that rests on David. Same one that will rest on Israel. Rests on you and me. And it is the Spirit of Christ. Jesus said in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you'll see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So the dove of the distant terebinth, and David writes, verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me, fighting all day long. He oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for there are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Great verse to memorize. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man 
do to me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Is it possible? Is it possible truly to have faith and fear at the same time? There are those who say, hey, if you have faith, you shouldn't have fear. I would disagree. I believe it's absolutely possible to have fear and faith at the same time. Because David, by the Spirit of Christ, says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. I would go so far as to say fear is required for faith to grow. We need fear in our lives. Otherwise, why would we have to turn to God and trust? I was sitting looking out my office. I rearranged my office like I do from time to time just to kind of you know, keep it fresh. And I'm, I put my desk right in front of the window looking out. And we now have some, some new landscaping out, out there. And, and my favorite trees, we have three birch trees. And they've just taken off. We just planted them this last spring. But yesterday, it was blowing pretty hard. And I'm watching these trees, you know, as they're going sideways and back and forth. And the rain's coming down. And I began thinking, we live on North Woodby Island. And we've got these brand new birch trees sitting out here in our, in our front yard. And we're going to head into some terrific winds coming this winter. I hope these things survive. And I'm right in the middle of reading this, and I thought, wait a minute. Of course they'll survive. That's what they need. They need the wind to push and bend them so that their roots will take hold and grab on. And that's what we need in our faith, isn't it? We need the winds to blow against us. We need the hard times of life to batter us so that we take root in our faith. So that when we are afraid, we can, like David, say, I will put my trust in you. It's critical to understand that in the walk of our faith. That fearful times can do one of two things to us as believers in Christ. They can either uproot us or they can strengthen us. And they will strengthen us if we walk by His Spirit. And I guess the uprooting or the strengthening, it all depends on whom or to whom you turn during fearful times. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that, listen, Paul writing, Mr. Faith, so that we despaired even of life. What does that mean? We were scared to death, Paul says. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves. What does that mean? It means they were all saying, we're going to die. This is it. We are dead meat. But he says, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. Paul said we had to get to the right on the edge of death to recognize, hey, even if we do die, He's going to deliver us. Or He'll deliver us from death. Paul, in the midst of fear, trusts in God. David cries out, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. And when we put our trust in God during fearful times, our faith becomes more established. Which is why God allows those fearful times. Now someone might say, but I thought the Bible said perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18 Well, you're right, it does. Perfect love does cast out fear, but that doesn't mean we won't be afraid. What in the world does that mean? It means that in the context of 1 John chapter 4, when John says perfect love casts out fear, what he's saying is God's perfect love casts out the fear of our losing Him. 
Perfect love. His, only His love is perfect. It's not that somehow our love becomes perfect as walking humans on this earth, and so we become less fearful. That's completely out of context. His love is perfect, and His love casts out the fear of judgment. The fear of being forsaken by Him. He will not forsake you. His love is perfect. Therefore, what are you afraid of? There is no need to worry that perhaps God will turn His back on you and walk away. He won't do it. His perfect love casts out that fear. But I'm still going to be afraid from time to time. Afraid for my circumstances. Afraid in my life. But in that, I am stable and immovable because His perfect love is rock solid. The only thing I don't have to fear whatsoever is God forsaking me. Though everyone else might, He will not. Verse 5. All day long, David writes, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps. And as they have waited to take my life, because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. Now, 1 Samuel 21 records the story that's behind this. And we know it because it says this is when the Philistines seized David in Gath. And you may recall that interesting story. David flees for his life from Saul into enemy territory. I mean, talk about out of the frying pan and into the fire, David goes. He comes into Gath right from having visited a place called Nob. Do you remember what happened in Nob? Talked about it last week. Eighty-five priests were slain by Doeg the Bad Egg. Okay? But from Nob, David, while he's there, not only picks up some bread for him and his men to eat, he also picks up an instrument of a weaponry, Goliath's sword. He goes from Nob, dragging Goliath's big sword, into Gath, Goliath's hometown. Stupid! What are you thinking, David? Point is, he's not. He's not. Any more than anyone who says, man, when there's conflict in God's country, I'm going to enemy territory. When there are problems in the church, I'm going to the world. That is one of the most foolish things people do. I've had it with the church. I've had it with Christians. So I'm going to go find my solace in the world. And you are entering Gath, enemy territory. You think it's hard here? Hey, at least here we have a standard God has given us of love and forgiveness. We may not be perfect. We may hurt each other. We may goof it up. We may offend But we have love and forgiveness always to come back to. The world doesn't. You think you're going to get it there? Well, David got away from Philistia. He ran. And what was going on is what he talks about here, that they distort my words, their thoughts are for me, against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps. People were increasingly going after David. They capture him, they bring him before the king. And the only way David can get out of that is to act like a madman. Remember, he has a drool spit coming down his beard. And he's acting crazy. I I mean, you know, King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I don't know what he was doing, but he was acting nuts. And it was so bad that the king said, do I need more madmen here in Gath? Get him out. And David gets out with his life by the skin of his teeth. And boy, just as David acted crazy, it's crazy to go find refuge in the world. Well, he gets away. And he comes there into the caves of Adullam where he's writing Psalm 56. And what's interesting is here he begins now to download his distress. That ever happened to you? You ever find that when you're in the midst of crises, that there's so much going on, you just got to deal with it. It's after the crises that you begin to be emotional. It's when things are okay that suddenly the tears come or the anguish flows 
the emotions come out after we've actually left the fearful situation. Why is that? Well, because emotionally, sometimes we just can't handle it. It's like the emotion shuts off, we deal with crisis, and when it's over, we're just, oh, man, that was awful. Well, that's David. In the cave of Adullam, he's thinking back now, and he's saying, that, that, was, that was terrible. And this is evidenced by the many songs of deliverance that David wrote in the cave of Adullam. There are several, and, and we're looking at many of them tonight. But prophetically, I want you to stop and think about the people of Israel as the dust settles from their fearful flight to safety. I can imagine a a quiet weeping that begins to spread through their hiding place in the rock mountains, in the wilderness, as they begin to realize what they've just come out of. That the emotion suddenly begins to flow. Well, what will they have just come out of? Zechariah 13, verse 8 says, It will come about, and all the land declares the Lord that two parts of it will be cut off and perish but the third will be left in it. Two-thirds of all jewelry, of all the Jewish people, wiped out. Brothers, think about it for a moment. Let's say there was a terrorist attack that destroyed two-thirds of America. And there were a third of us left. How many of us would be touched by that? Every one of us. And probably very personally. And this third of Israel is left... The Lord says, I will bring the third part through the fire. I'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. But how awful will the realization of everything that they've come out of be for the saved remnant when they finally arrive at the hiding place in the wilderness? It'll be incredible. But note verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. How do I know, personally, that God is for me? Because He tracks every one of your tears. My brother wrote a song, one of my favorite worship songs. We had to do it sometime. It's called Tears in a Bottle. He put my tears in a bottle. Why would God do that? Well, Matthew Henry says, the tears of God's persecuted people are bottled up and sealed among God's treasures. He puts my tears in a bottle. Every tear that falls. You know, we we lose track. God doesn't. He knows every moment of anguish. You realize that in our lives there are so many moments of anguish and sorrow and tearfulness in the past that we can't even recall. He can. He remembers. He knows when we've been in pain. He knows when we've been weeping. And He knows such that Revelation 21.4 tells us He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God is for me. How do you know? He puts my tears, even my tears, in a bottle. Verse 10, In God whose word I praise... In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? You know, just in answer to the question, why do we keep pounding away at the word of God week in, week out, month after month, year after year? Well, here is yet another reason for staying in the word as we are. Because the word resets my focus from man to God. 
Every time I open up God's Word, my focus is lifted out of this world and to the Father. My focus is taken off of my enemies. It's taken off of my conflicts. It's taken off of my struggles. And I'm not saying that you are my conflict or struggles. I'm just saying that we all have them. And it lifts my focus where it needs to be. As long as my eyes are on the Father, I'm I'm not fighting human fleshly battles. I am prepared to fight spiritual battles with my Father going before me. Psalm 42.11, we read this a few weeks back. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. And I wouldn't have thought that up. The Word implants that into my heart. So we keep going back to it again and again. As David said, in God whose Word, I praise. Verse 12 your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Part of what draws out the prophetic picture of Psalm 56 is how it ends. This picture of the remnant of Israel having fled Antichrist to the safe place in the wilderness, we see in the conclusion of this psalm. You have delivered my soul from death. They will be a people delivered. From death. From absolute destruction. And even now, the world is gearing up for the destruction of Israel. Antisemitism is on the rise. And a desire to drive them out is growing. And the people of Israel will be able to say, whether they quote the psalm or not, they will be able to say, You have delivered our souls from death, indeed our feet from stumbling. But there's something else that's interesting to me there in verse 12. Your vows are binding upon me, O God. Israel will have time to reflect now in the safe place, in the wilderness, on the broken covenant, the broken vow of Antichrist in contrast to their covenant-keeping God. Antichrist, the man of peace, the man of the hour. Here's a covenant, a seven-year peace treaty, and I'll keep it, of course I will. You can trust me. And Israel signs, yes, on the dotted line. And three and a half years in, he violates it, he breaks it, he goes after Israel. They flee for their lives, they land in the place in the wilderness, and somebody somewhere in that little enclave, I am convinced, is going to say, God doesn't break covenants. God keeps his vows. And we read this here. Your vows are binding upon me, O God. Not binding in that they chain us up. In fact, the word binding is added. Really read it. Your vows are upon me, O God. You realize that every single covenant that God made with Israel, seven of them, out of all seven, one is conditional. And that's the Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant where he says, if you keep my law, then I will bless you in these ways. Every other covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, on through, God makes the land covenant. He makes covenants with Israel that he himself promises to keep, regardless of what they do. And I share that because any teaching, theology, or ism, and I recognize there are many who would disagree with me on this, but listen, any teaching, theology, or ism, such as amillennialism, which says there really is no, it's not a literal millennial kingdom, we're just kind of in it now, or postmillennialism, which says we will rule and reign, which we are right now, until we have conquered the world for Christ, then he'll come back and we'll hand it to him on a golden platter which amazes me that someone could actually believe that in this world. Any ism, preterism, which says that everything in the book of Revelation happened back in AD 70. Listen, any ism 
that denies a literal kingdom on earth for Israel denies the very nature of God. How can you say that? Because God is a covenant keeper. And when He says, I will, guess what? He will. He has promised a kingdom for Israel. He will follow through. There will be a kingdom for Israel. Not just in Israel proper, but worldwide. Zechariah talks about all the nations through that time of the millennium flowing into Israel to worship there in Jerusalem. And if they don't, they don't get any rain. And if you want to study that, Zechariah 14, go check that out. The nature of God, a covenant-keeping God, your vows... Your vows are upon me. Psalm 57. Now this psalm is for the choir director set to Al-Tasheth, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So we're back in the cave here. The heading there, Al-Tasheth, it means do not destroy. Now these are all probably, you know, the song of the, or the dove of the distant terebinth or do not destroy. These are probably song titles, musical, you know, Titles that are set and David's writing words to go with these different musical uh, songs. But this one's called Do Not Destroy. David is now safe in hiding. So like Psalm 56, he, he runs to be in hiding. He's safe by the end of it. Now in Psalm 57, he is safe in hiding. It's a different situation for David. But prophetically, now Israel is safe. Now they have fled, but now they are in the safe place in the wilderness. Watch this unveil before us. And by the way, remember, in Christ Jesus, you are safe. You are secure, sealed in the Spirit of God, even though the threat outside still remains, even though we may be surrounded by the henchmen of Satan, like Israel will be surrounded. Watch this, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. I love this. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings, he says, until the destruction passes by. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Matthew 23, 37. Israel was unwilling until they get to the hiding place in the wilderness, at which point I believe they will be singing, My soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. The wings that Jesus provided. He said, I I want to gather you in. Well, He will. They will come under His safety, His protection, there in the wilderness until the destruction passes by. Isaiah prophesied as much. He said in Isaiah 25.9, It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Verse 3, He will send from heaven and save me. The reproaches, he, he reproaches Him who tramples upon me. And once again, David sticks a Selah right in the middle of our verse. So we have to pause. He will send from heaven and save me. He will send who from heaven to save me? Well, who comes from heaven to save people of the world? Jesus. Sunday school answer. Jesus. Just say it. Always say Jesus and 99% of the time you will be right. (laughs) Jesus. This speaks of Jesus who comes from heaven. 
He goes on and says, God will send forth His loving kindness. Well, Jesus is loving kindness incarnate. Jesus is grace. The picture of grace. The very embodiment of grace. Grace personified in Jesus Christ. And He says, and His truth. Well, Jesus is also the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. So verse 3 says He will send from heaven. He will send forth His loving kindness and His truth. is Jesus that He's talking about in verse 3. Whether He realizes it or not. Verse 4 he says, but my soul is among the lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Again, listen, David is safe as he's writing the psalm. He's in the cave. He is safe from Saul. He can look out and he's got himself a nice protected place there. Saul's encamped out there with the armies of Israel to destroy David, but he's safe and yet surrounded. Safe but surrounded is the picture. David is safe. Israel in the tribulation, safe but surrounded. You and I right now are safe but surrounded. The lion is prowling just outside the door. Peter said, and we've read this many times, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, 1 Peter 5.8. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what's the best thing to do when you know outside of your safe place, when you know the devil is lurking, what's the best thing to do? Worship. Worship. Praise God. Watch this. Verse 5. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. David is praising. He's worshiping. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I love this. Surrounded by imminent danger, but safe in the cave, David turns to the liar. I don't know if he had one with him there in the cave. Maybe he had like a little baby tailor liar or something. A little travel guitar. You know, and he pulls it out. And can you imagine if in fact he had a lyre or an instrumental uh, an instrument there in the cave, which he may have gotten from Gath, who knows. If he has it there in the cave... Can you imagine being in Saul's army? It's late at night. You're just watching. Is he going to come out? I don't know. If he does, I've got it. Okay, good. And all of a sudden you hear this little praise song floating out. Like Paul and Silas in the midst of the prison singing praises, worshiping God. Because when the enemy is lurking, the best thing you can do is praise the Lord. Worship Him. The devil hates when you do that. Remember that scene in Ghostbusters? Have you ever seen the movie? So when Bill Murray first walks into this apartment of this girl, who uh, Sigourney Weaver, and she thinks that her apartment is has ghosts, and Bill Murray basically is just a big con artist. He's not really a ghost buster, but he walks in the door and he opens up her piano and he starts playing the keys, the real high keys, like that, and he goes, "They hate that." <laughs> Satan hates it when you worship. When voices lift up praise, when songs of praise are offered, he hates it. Best thing to do when he is lurking. I think Israel is going to be worshiping in that hidden place, in that safe place in the wilderness. I think there's going to be worship going on 24-7. Worship, prayer, seeking the Lord. David says, I will awaken the dawn. Why? Because the dawn follows the the dark night of despair. And it's time to worship. Eyes wide open. 
Verse 9, he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Wow. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Once we've worked through the emotional distress of danger and deliverance, for people of faith, the praises start to flow. Now Psalm 58 continues the same flow of praises also said to Al Tashef, do not destroy. Here's the third miktam as it gets underway. Verse 1. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Or another translation of that would be mighty ones. Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. I like that one. That's just good. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Remember what it said back in the earlier psalm there, one psalm earlier, Psalm 57. He says uh, in verse 4, the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue is a sharp sword. Now David's saying, God, would you go in there and just break all that up? Break their teeth? Smash their fangs? The fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Young lions? Yeah, because they're like their father, the prowling lion, that old devil. Young lions, like their father, the devil. O Lord, verse 7, let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. You know, you take the head off a shaft of an arrow and the arrow just doesn't go anywhere. He says, let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along. There's a snail in the Middle East that if it is left out in the sun for too long, just starts to melt. Cool. Gross. Like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. Watch this. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. And every man in the room says, Amen. Washing our feet in the blood. Taking them down. Yeah, that's a good song to read at a gun show, actually. (laughs) This is a brutal psalm. Psalm 58 is a tough one. And there's a reason. It's thought, and it's very likely, that David probably wrote Psalm 58 in his early years as king, as he found himself surrounded by the unrighteous Supreme Court of the previous administration. The judges left behind from the days of Saul. And David came into his royal throne and his rule, and he began to see the injustice that was going on in Israel, and it sickened him. And he sat down and he wrote Psalm 58 about what was going on at that time. Psalm 58 deals with an insane legal system, an out-of-control judiciary, led by those who, rather than seeking godly righteousness, were handing down human foolishness. 
Sound familiar? I mean, wow, really? Bad courts have happened before. Honestly, with all the legislating from the bench that we see going on in America today, I find myself often praying for the righteous judgment of God to make things right. Now, I have yet to pray that we might, you know, bask in the blood of the unrighteous or wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. Haven't prayed that one yet. Yet. Psalm 58 is a prayer for righteous judgment to be administered in the land. And it is not a stretch to think that this remnant of Israel there in the wilderness could pray this psalm for all the unrighteousness they see going on. But I want you to understand something. We're going to come back to this and study it more thoroughly a week from Sunday. But I will give you this much right now. Why is it that that David could write such a brutal and bloody psalm and talk about rejoicing in the bloodshed of the wicked? You know, as Christians, we're not normally told to do that. You know, with us, it's turn the other cheek, right? Repay, do not repay evil for evil. Leave vengeance to the Lord. Be gentle and loving. Mr. and Mrs. Oscar Milktoast, which is actually not what we're taught to do. We are taught to be forgiving and loving. So what's the balance here? The balance is this. If it is righteous for God to judge brutally, then it is right for us to rejoice in it. If the righteous judgment of God is to cause even bloodshed, please understand here. This is why I need an entire Sunday morning to talk about this. If it's right and righteous for God to do it, then it will be right for us to rejoice in it. As we will, Psalm 19 tells us, Hallelujah. Righteous and true are all your judgments, O Lord. And we'll talk about this again in a week from, week from Sunday. Psalm 59 now, going on. For the choir director, set to again, Al-Tashith, do not destroy. Miktam of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So now David again, he's safe but surrounded. He's, he's in the house and they're coming to kill him. They're coming to take him out. Historically, this is David. Prophetically, again, Israel. And personally, you and me. Safe, but surrounded, yet secure. Demonic forces are still at work outside each of our lives seeking to destroy. Now, I know there are people who would say, Pastor Rick, you're making too much a deal about this whole Satan thing. You know, you're just trying to stir up your people and get them all emotional and freak them out. No, I'm just trying to keep things in a right perspective. The perspective every believer should have, Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And whether we want to ignore it or not, it doesn't change the fact that the spiritual forces are there. That the forces of wickedness are at work. Now we can turn a blind eye to it. We can pretend like it's not true. It doesn't make it untrue. Which is why we are called to be a people of prayer. Why we are called to be alert and aware of what might be going on behind the scenes, rather at the forefront. As we pray, the enemy that we pray against is not Iran. It's the prince of Persia. That demonic ruler. It is Satan himself and his demonic horde 
that we pray against and we battle against in prayer. We must be a people who do that. Now, Psalm 59. As David continues to pray for deliverance from enemies, seen enemies, but we pray for deliverance from the unseen. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God, verse 1. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they've set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. And I might point out that all the nations comment lifts it from simply being historical and puts it into the place of the prophetic. Because David, in the context here, is simply running from the henchmen of Saul. He simply wants protection from these piddly few little guys in his nation, and yet he's praying that God would awake and punish all the nations. Why would he pray that? Because there is a time coming when all the nations will be set against Israel. Now again, the certain historical background of this psalm is 1 Samuel 19. Verse 11 tells us Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, Saul's daughter, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, for he went out and fled and escaped. This was the turning point for David. This is the moment in his younger life when he finally fled the presence of Saul. Three times before this, the unstable and fast-going insane Saul threw spears at David. Three times! You know, for me, it would take one and I'd be gone. You know, I would tender my resignation. Three times, David just playing the liar. Three times. But he sticks with it. David has a loyalty in him. He was there to serve Saul. But after the third time, he runs to his house, slams the door, locks it shut, and Michael says, tonight you die. They look out the window, Saul's men are all out there in the bushes. You know, kind of like the old west, those dusty old western towns. And you know when a gunfight's going to happen because a guy pops up out of the barrel? <laughs> I look around. <laughs> There's another guy up above the livery stable right up there. I see him. The guy behind the hay. An idiot out in the middle of the street. You know. They look out, they see this. And Michael helps David out the back window, the second story down in a basket to escape into the night. But the henchmen of the enemy are all there, all outside. They will be, they will be in the tribulation. Yes, Israel will be safe, but they will be there. Listen, Revelation 12, 17 says, The dragon was enraged with the woman, Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. But do you think when he is enraged and he leaves, recognizing he can't get to them, do you think he just leaves them unguarded? Unwatched. I'll just let them go. No way. You better believe that all around, wherever this secret refuge in the wilderness is, all around there will be the henchmen of Antichrist. Watching for one foolish Jew to walk out and look to take him out. And does Satan leave you unwatched? You better know he doesn't. You better understand 
and I say this gently, that you are being watched. It's not that we might be paranoid, but that we might be prepared. Luke 4.13 tells us that Satan, after tempting Jesus, he left Jesus for a more opportune time. For another chance to try and come back at Him. And at your worst temptation, when finally, oh, He's not tempting me anymore, I got through that one, things are okay, He's coming back. He's got you watched. He wants to cause you to fall. There is discernment and wisdom in this gang. And I think I shared this on Sunday. I pray often that God will protect me from falling. For the sake of my family, for the sake of my children, for the sake of our fellowship, that He will watch me keep my feet from falling. Because I know what Satan's up to. Ephesians 4.27, Paul says, Don't give the devil an opportunity. An opportune time. A foothold. Don't give him the chance to cause you to fall. You know, I'll I'll use drinking as an example because it's just so easy. (laughs) No one starts out wanting to be an alcoholic. It's just one drink in the evening. That's all. Just one. One glass of wine because, you know, it tastes good and it helps me relax. And then the glass is getting bigger. And then it's um, two glasses because one didn't do what it used to do. No one starts out heading that direction. And all I'm saying to you, and you may not have any issue, any problem whatsoever with having a sip of wine every now and then, but let me tell you, don't give the devil a foothold. Whether it's that, I mean, that's just a lame example. There are so many examples of ways that we give Satan opportunity to cause us to fall. And he's watching for it. Game, we are safe, but we're surrounded, yet secure. Don't forget that we're still surrounded until Jesus comes and knocks Satan on his teeth. Verse 6. Where are we? Psalm 59. Verse 6. Speaking again about these henchmen, they return at evening. They howl like a dog. I like that. And go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. Why do they say, Who hears? Because they figure... You know, who's going to take us on? We're the henchmen of the enemy. Uh, We're the henchmen of Saul. Or the henchmen of Antichrist. Who's going to take us on? We're the henchmen of the boss. We got it. Who hears? David says, God does. You hear. (laughs) You laugh at them. You scoff, Lord, at all the nations. Because of His strength, I will watch for you. Note that. Because of His strength. Whose strength? The enemy's strength. Because of His strength, I'll watch for you. I know He's strong. I know He's capable. I know He can trip me up. So I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. His strength makes me watch for you. Even in fear of the enemy, gang, my faith is strengthened as long as I'm looking to God, who is my stronghold. Verse 10. My God, in His loving kindness, will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Can you imagine Israel singing this? In that place in the wilderness. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down. Oh Lord, our shield. Wait, isn't David writing this? Why wouldn't he say, oh Lord, my shield? Because there is a stuff of prophecy here. It's larger than David. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride. And on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. That men may know that God rules in Jacob. 
Again, he's getting after this destroy thing. Wipe them out, break the teeth, smash them, take them down, rip them apart, shred them, Lord. You know what I mean? It's just this very almost vindictive, vengeful kind of praying here. But again, gang, if the judgment of God is righteous, it's right to rejoice in it. This is a song of the delivered praising God for taking down corruption. You're not the judge or the executioner. I'm not the judge or the executioner, but God is and will do both at the proper time. Hallelujah. He will do both at the proper time. That's why back in chapter 58, verse 10, David could write, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. I told you last week, the world is rushing fast away from the whole pre-tribulation, pre-millennial theology, the literal translation of the book of Revelation. The emergent church abhors the description of the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. Why? It's too bloody. And so they say, their words, we need to reimagine the coming of Jesus in a way that will be more palatable for the world around us. What? You can reimagine all you want. You're not going to change what is happening in truth. You are not going to change His coming. And it was said just recently by a radio commentator, yeah, it was just those Christians who are, who are so excited about the demise of the world. Remember the article we read? That was what the guy was saying. Yeah, these Christians who are just excited about the death and destruction. I'm not excited about that. But that doesn't mean it's not true. That doesn't mean God is not going to judge and judge righteously. He will. He'll do it. Verse 14, he says, They return at evening. They howl like a dog. Again, with the dog. (laughs) And go around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. What is up with the dogs here? And what's going on here with all this? They growl that they're not satisfied. You know, this alone is why it is not enough in this world just to live and let live. This is why it is not enough to... Do you hear the dog barking? That's great. That's great. Thanks, Cosby. That's why it is not enough as Christians just to sit back and say, you know what? Gay community, just let them do their thing, man. You know, drug users down in Seattle, just, just let just, you know, make marijuana available to everyone. Just let it, it's cool. I, I won't do it. Live and let live. You know why live and let live doesn't work? Because they growl if they are not satisfied. And sin is insatiable. And as people go down a path, it's never enough. Back in the 70s, homosexuality was suddenly okayed in America. It wasn't California. It was voted in as, okay, it's, 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 a, it's a minority group now. That wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It will never be enough. Why are you getting after the homosexual? I'll tell you in a week and a half. You'll just have to wait. Why do you always get after the homosexual? Rick, are you a homophobe? No. Okay, I'll tell you why. (laughs) You'll have to hear it again. Why must we continually rail against homosexuality in this day? Because it is the sin issue of our culture. I didn't go looking to talk about it. 
but it is being forced in our faces constantly. Cheryl and I are four seasons into the show Bones. I don't know if you've ever seen Bones. David Boreanaz and what's-her-name... Who's it? Anyway. And enjoy the show. And, but I knew. I'm just waiting. I told her when we started. I bet, I bet at some point it's going to go, you know, off the end. And it, it did before. I mean, there's some immoral stuff, and we're just kind of going, you know, we really, we really just need to... Got into the fourth season, and one of the primary characters is suddenly gay. She's just suddenly... So I'm done. I'm done. Homophobe? No. I'm sick and tired of having sinful lifestyle thrust into my living room. Forced on to me. We can live and let live. But if we do that, they will growl. They will not be satisfied. They will wander about for food. There's always more that is wanted. These, these dogs. Who are you calling dogs, Rick? Well, it's not who I'm calling dogs, actually. It's who David is calling dogs. It's who Paul calls dogs. It's a, another group of people. But understand, before I tell you who the dogs are, that carnality always craves more. It always wants more. Dogs. Dogs in Scripture are not the cute, cuddly pets that we have in our homes. A dog in Scripture is quite the put-down. It portrays the foolish, the heathen, the outsider, the Gentile. A Jewish often would call a Gentile a dog. Uh, a Jew would do that. So it's those literally who deny God, they're the dogs of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul writes, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil, do, evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and, the glo- and glory in Christ Jesus. And listen, listen, put no confidence in the flesh. The circumcision. Those were Jewish Christians early in the church who said you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you've got to have the circumcision. And then there are those who are not the circumcision who say, no, it's by grace you have been saved, and they're right. It is only by grace that we have been saved, because the truth is, the dogs of Scripture howl because they want you to do something for it. They want us to earn it somehow. They undermine the truth. What truth? That we put no confidence in the flesh. All our confidence from first to last is in the loving kindness of God, in His grace. I love this. John Corson puts it this way. Grace is not just the starting point. It is the only point. That's it. You don't begin with grace and then head into law to try and keep the grace that you've been given by Christ. No, it is the only point. By grace you have been saved, and by grace you will be saved. Period. That's it. In contrast to the dogs of the flesh who growl if they're not satisfied, who never get enough, who keep putting it in your face, who keep saying there's got to be more that you do, or that I do, or works. But David says, oh, As for me, I shall sing of your strength. And note that, verse 16, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness. I will sing of His grace. You can bark all you want. I'm singing about grace. The fifth and final miktam. We'll do this one quickly. Psalm 60. The heading is here, uh, Psalm 60, for the choir director according to Shushan Edut, a miktam of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, when Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Eden in the Valley of Salt. That's quite a title. <laughs> It's according to Shushan 
Edut, what is Shushan Edut? It means the lily of testimony. The lily of testimony. Often in ancient war songs, roses and lilies were referenced and used in word pictures. And David's lily of testimony here, his testimony, is to the true hero of a great battle. Which is what he's talking about. Historically, David's up in the north. He's fighting the Arameans, who are the Syrians today. But as he fights, down in the south, the Edomites decide to attack. David's busy. Israel's fighting up north. Let's take them out. On the backside here, 2 Samuel 8, 1 Chronicles 18, tell the story. And David is caught by surprise. He's frazzled. He's worried. So he, he sends Joab and Abishai. He says, quick, grab some guys. Head down there. Fight against Edom. Joab and Abishai go down. They fight against Edom and they conquer Edom completely. They destroy him. It's awesome. Prophetically, this rounds out this five Miktam series because it is a claiming of confidence in the final thrashing of the enemy. It is recognizing that regardless of where the enemy strikes, he will be taken out and completely, and there will be liberation for God's people. Here we go. Verse 1. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You, you have been angry. Oh, restore us. Could Israel... Sing that. There in the hiding place. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people experience hardship. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Indeed, Jerusalem is a cup which causes reeling to all the people around. Verse 4. You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth. Now the reason for David's reeling again is militarily he is spread too thin. Militarily he cannot send the kind of force he needs to send to truly take out the Edomites. Militarily he doesn't know what to do. But David recognizes yet Israel has a banner. A banner. And it's not the two stripes of blue and the Star of David in the middle of that white background on the Jewish flag. That's not the banner of Israel. What banner is David talking about? Well, you've got to go back. You might recall the story of the Amalekites striking against the Israelites, the children of Israel, as they come out of Egypt. And as the Amalekites, they're striking from the rear. They're taking out the weak and the infirm and the defenseless. Remember that? They keep picking them off. So finally, Joshua and the people have to stand and fight. Moses and Aaron and Hur go up the mountain. And as Moses stands on the mountain overlooking the battlefield, and Joshua and the people are fighting, if Moses' hands are lifted up, a picture of intercession, well, Joshua and the people are winning. When his arms get tired and he has to put them down for a minute, the battle turns the other way and the Amalekites begin to win. So finally, he's got Aaron on one side and Hur on the other his and her, holding up the arms of Moses. Thank you. And as long as they hold up the arms of Moses, man, the battle is won. And finally, at the end of the day, the battle is won. Moses goes out there afterward and he builds an altar, Exodus seventeen fifteen, and he named it Yahweh Nisi. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is our banner. And when David writes this, knowing that you have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth. What is that banner? The Lord. David is saying we're spread too thin militarily. We can't win this battle against the Edomites and against the Arameans. And yet, the Lord is our banner. 
The Lord goes before us like a banner held out front going into battle and yet the banner does the fighting. Verse 5, That your beloved may be delivered, save us, save with your right hand and answer us, he says. Verse 6, God has spoken in His holiness. Now God begins to speak through David, I will exalt I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of mine head. Judah is my scepter. What is God saying here? Well, these are all places within the country of Israel. And what the Lord is now speaking is, those who are mine, I will deliver. Israel's mine. I will deliver them. I will deliver them whether they are in Shechem or Sukkot or Gilead or Manasseh or Ephraim. The whole country is my country and I will deliver those who are mine. And perhaps for those of you tonight, if you are still feeling the sting of recent sin or transgression or iniquity, perhaps what you need to say more than anything else, what I need to hear from time to time, is Jesus say, Hey, you're still mine. You're mine. And I will defend those who are mine. And I will deliver those who are mine. And you are mine. Mark that. And then he says in verse 8, the Lord's still speaking, Moab is my wash bowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. <laughs> Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Moab is my wash bowl. The literal translation, I kid you not, is toilet bowl. <laughs> this is God! <laughs> Isn't He marvelous? Moab, they're my commode. <laughs> and Edom, He says, I'll toss my shoe over you. What does that mean? It was an indication, historically, of forcible possession. I'm going to throw my shoe over you, Edom, because I'm going to walk all over you. I will possess you. Philistia... Oh, Felicity, he says, shout loud, literally, break out in a loud cry. It's a loud, fearful cry. It's a, oh, we're toast. I will take you down as a conquered people. So the Lord says, those who are mine, I will deliver. Those who are not mine, I will deal with. I will deal with them. David picks it back up in verse 9. Who will, watch this, who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? The besieged city in Edom, historically. David recognizes again that it was not Joab who conquered Edom. It was the Lord, the banner, Yahweh Nisi. But prophetically, this is huge. This besieged city in Edom may very likely have been the city of Petra. In Edom, Petra. The besieged city. And the Lord says, I'm going. David says, who will bring me? David. Is David representative of Israel? Often he is in the Psalms. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? He says. Have you not yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? Oh, give us help against the adversary. Who's the adversary? That's the other That's the other 1% of the Sunday school answer you give that. You might be right if it's something wicked or evil. Probably Satan. Give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. That's a good one to underline and memorize. I'm having money trouble. Got to go see a financial counselor. How about you pray first? 
You know? Deliverance by man. It's in vain. Through God, verse 12, we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our adversaries. Fast forward. It's the time. It's the end of the great tribulation. The remnant of Israel, they're protected in three and a half years. The last three and a half years, they're in that same place under constant threat and pinned down. They're safe, but surrounded. And yet secure, but stuck. Step one foot outside of the hidden city, the protected refuge, and you're toast, man. They were stuck there three and a half years. That's a long time to be under house arrest, or maybe it will feel that way. But it all comes together as they cry out, give us help against the adversary. Deliverance by man is in vain. They get it. They get it. Israel says, it is not deliverance by our power. It never was deliverance by our strength. Through God, we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our adversaries. They finally get it. Who treads down the adversary? Who will save the remnant? Who saves you? When the enemy is encamped around you, against you today, who? Jesus does. Well, how do you know it's Jesus? Well, because God says back in verse 7, Judah is my scepter. Does that draw up an old prophecy for anybody? Genesis 49, verse 10. Old Jacob on his deathbed says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The scepter of Judah, the lawgiver of Israel, Shiloh, it's none other than Jesus Christ. And Father, we just praise You for Jesus. And we praise You and recognize, Lord, that even when we are surrounded as often we are by the enemy trying to take down Your your plans, Your provisions for us, by Satan himself or his demonic horde trying to keep us from going forward, even here, this little barn church, Father, we know we have marching orders. We recognize we've got a mission. And we know we are safe and secure even here in this barn. But Father, we just pray that You would lead us forth in battle and in victory. Not battle, Father, against human flesh. But battle against against the spiritual forces. And truly, Father, in great compassion for humanity all around us who are yet to know Jesus Christ. Father, lead us valiantly. Be our banner, O God. And as you will swoop down, Jesus, from the heavens, and you will declare absolute victory over the earth, and you will rescue your remnant of Israel, you will lead them out in glorious procession there, out of that hiding place, back into Jerusalem and into the millennial kingdom, to the praise of your glory. So, Lord Jesus, will you lead us now? Lead us forward in faith and trust, though we may be fearful. May we have faith. Though we may may be surrounded, may we be secure and sure. Father, as you promised, engraved upon your hand, keep us near your heart in Jesus' name. Amen.